Um, so, I'm going to ask a question. In fact, I'm going to ask two questions, and I'm going to ask you to answer it as fast as you can. Three points to the person who has the fastest answer. You have to raise your hand first, though. Okay. Are you ready? Here's the question. Suppose a stranger from Roseburg, Oregon, comes to you and says, God sent me a vision telling me to be a Christian. He didn't give me any more information. You're a Christian. What do I do? Three points right over there. <laughs> Read the Bible. Very good. That's a, that's a reasonable, reasonable uh, uh, first response for a fast thing. There, there you go. Yeah. Uh huh. Prayer. Prayer. So you teach them Bible reading, prayer. Anybody else? Come on in. Yeah, come in the house. Uh, hospitality. Very good. Okay. Now I'm going to adjust the question a little bit, okay? So um, I'm going to change the conditions. Same question, different conditions. Now further suppose that there are no other Christians to be found from Medford to Multnomah Falls. The only Christians in the entire state of Oregon are right here in Monmouth, okay? Now, suppose further that the strange Roseburger cannot read or write, <laughs> all right? There is no Christian radio program or audio messages of any kind, all right? And there is no telephone service in Roseburg, and the roads are such that it would take you an hour and 15 minutes to drive from here to West Salem. Imagine going all the way to Roseburg. So, same question under those conditions. What's your answer? Yeah, not as fast. It, it, it's, it's okay. I'm not actually expecting you to answer that one really fast. <laughs> what I really wanted to do is set you up for the conditions that uh, I was under. I am, you are now ready for me to tell you the story of how Sori Konate was transformed by Christ. Here we go. Sori grew up knowing words of, about the majesty and the severity of God, but they were just words with little meaning to him. Now, some of you may know what that's, kind of, what that's like. Some of you older uh, folks who grew up in, in a, in a, who were in the first grade when you had to pledge, pledge of allegiance every day. Remember that? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. <laughs> now, words, this is a serious pledge, but first grade is so words like allegiance, republic, justice, and even little words in that pledge like all might make a, uh, a well-informed uh, person 
want to do responsible civic service. But for a, a first grader, a young child, compelled to recite the pledge habitually and without re reflection, it doesn't mean quite so much, does it? Well, Saudi grew up, <laughs> it was even worse for him, for the words about the majesty and severity of God that he learned, those words weren't even in his language. You know, at least the pledges in our language. Those words for him were in the Arabic language. Now, at seven years of age, he had to memorize a prayer ritual. And um, that prayer ritual made up the sum of a feeble and formal relationship with God. I'm going to give you the feel for what it was like for Saudi to recite that prayer ritual uh, every day at such a young age and for the rest of his life. Now, uh, I will do part of it in the Arabic language so that you can have a feeling for the foreignness of that ritual, what it must have felt like for Saudi. But then I'm going to do uh, part of it in English so that because you understand it, I'm going to to give you an idea of the emptiness and, and repetitiveness for that uh, ritual, the monotony, as Saudi experienced it. Now, I'm not going to do the gestures of the ritual because, because uh, this is being recorded, and I do not want in any way uh, my friends who do this ritual um, to think that I am ridiculing their religion. I am not. I have uh, respect for every one of them. But for you, I have to explain what this uh, ritual is. And so that's why I'm doing it this way. So at first, uh, these people will stand um, with their arms hanging down, and they'll hear the leader say, Allahu Akbar. And then everybody will say, Subanaka, Allahumma wa bihamdika wa tabarika ismuka wa ta'ala jaduka wa Allah ilaha gairuka. Allahu Akbaru. And then they will bend down with their hands on their knees. They will say, Glory and praise to my all powerful Lord. Glory and praise to my all powerful Lord. Glory and praise to my all-powerful Lord. Allahu Akbar. Then they will stand. Allahu Akbar. Then they will bow prostrate with their foreheads touching the carpet. Glory to my all-powerful Lord. Glory to my all-powerful Lord. Glory to my all-powerful Lord. And then they will sit. My Lord, forgive me. My Lord, forgive me. My Lord, forgive me. Then they will bow prostrate again with their head touching the mat. Allahu Akbar. Glory to my all-powerful Lord. Glory to my all-powerful Lord. Glory to my all-powerful Lord. And then they will stand. Allahu Akbar. And that is one rakat.
There are two or three more to follow with some variations. Um, the ritual does not count unless this ritual is preceded by, by ablutions, ritual washings. So what he had to wash his hands, his mouth, his nostrils, his face, his head, his ears, and his feet a certain number of times in a particular way while reciting uh, certain Arabic words. If he did not do this, the prayer ritual would not count. Now, if Sori does the prayer ritual with others, then he is taught that it is exactly 27 times more beneficial to him than the same ritual performed alone. Sori knew nothing about the love of God. The prayer ritual did not translate for Sori into a life of love. Now, we Christians, you and I, we know that, that for a Christian, love for God and love for the neighbor, our neighbor, is, is the cat's meow. It's, it's Yahtzee. Uno. Bingo! <laughs> for, for Christians, prayer is what makes the kingdom of heaven, heaven. But the prayer ritual could never lead Sodi into heaven. It could not even keep Sodi's heart from malice. Sodi had had a vision from God that instructed Sodi to follow Jesus. Now, is this going to be sounding familiar? <laughs> so he had this vision, and there was no other message in the vision. Sodi did not know what to do. So he got on his bike and he rode for 42 miles to go to the town where Carol and I uh, lived. And uh, we were introduced. Some people led him uh, to us. There was no other Christian in his village that he could talk to. There was not a Christian in any of the surrounding villages. There was not a Christian work in the entire region where Saudi lived. If Sori was going to learn anything about Jesus, it was going to have to be from Carol and me. And that was not going to be convenient. <laughs> For about a year, I would drive out once a week uh, to visit Sori. And that was a two-hour drive over roads that aren't so good. <laughs> and once I got there, I would, I would park in his his uh, uh, compound in the village where he lives, and then I had an hour hike to where uh, Sodi's field, where I would find him working. Sodi and I would would pray and read the scriptures. At that time, there was only the Gospel of Luke, <laughs> so I would read the Gospel of Luke to him and, and pray for a couple hours. Oh, by the way, I have an announcement to make. Right now, as of as of this month. The entire New Testament has been translated into his language. And so, yeah. Yeah, so that's pretty good. It's not just the Gospel of Luke anymore, baby. <laughs> and so, but in those days, it was just the Gospel of Luke. So we'd spend two hours uh, uh, underneath uh, his cashew trees 
uh, reading the Gospel of Luke, uh, praying and talking about it. And then I would hike back for an hour and then drive two hours back to, <laughs> to the uh, town where we lived. Okay? Transportation for villagers is difficult and expensive. So once the villagers realized that I was coming once a week, every week, a lot of them kind of thought, hey, we can get a free ride with this guy back to the, to, or to the town, you know? And so then there would be a crowd of people around the car getting a little rambunctious, if you know what I mean. And it was kind of stressful, actually. And so I arranged for Saudi, because I didn't want this to happen every week, so I arranged for Saudi. I said, you know, uh, you just you know, people, just have people ask you and you make those arrangements so that when I come, you know, the people will just get in the car and we'll go. We don't, we, I don't want a crowd. <laughs> this is not good. And so, so they said, okay. Well, um, one day, one of Sori's neighbors became very ill and he needed um, some he needed to go to the hospital and he needed to go fairly soon. And so uh, a relative of that sick person went to Sori and said, would you please, it's an emergency, would you reserve uh, a place for me in the car and a place for my sick relative? And Sori said, of course, I will do everything I can. But in Sori's malice-laden heart, he did not say a thing to me about those people. His plan was to not say anything about it at all, and he, di he didn't want that guy to go to the hospital. He knew that I would only let a certain amount of people in the car. I wouldn't pack people in like, a, like is usually done in the area. And he knew that I kind of wanted it to, to be done orderly. And he knew that the family would be coming with the guy. And he knew that I would say, Translated, that means in an irritated tone. The car is full and nobody else is coming and that's it. And he knew that they would hear me say that out loud. And then he would just turn to him. I tried. But he would enjoy. Now here's what he was enjoying. You might not understand the culture. He didn't have anything against the sick man at all. He didn't even have anything against the, the man who was, who was taking the sick man to the hospital. There is another relative that Sori doesn't like. <laughs> He picked on him ever since they were kids. And so he wanted to get back at him. And he knew the way to do that is because it's very expensive to, to drive to the hospital. It's expensive to have food to be prepared at the hospital. It's ex the hospital itself, the doctors are expensive. And he knew that that family would be drained. <laughs> and he would enjoy knowing that he participated in that. So it happened on that day, the very day that that was going to happen, Sori and I were sitting in his field underneath the cashew tree. 
and we were reading Luke chapter 6, verse 35 and 36, which I will read to you now. I'm, I'm starting to chuckle because this is like the worst verse for him. Maybe the best verse for him. Oh, I have it saved here. Why am I looking for it? It says, but love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. <laughs> so after I read that to him, Sori said, which means, what will the reward be? <laughs> and I said, Malo, which means, I don't know. It was the first time anybody's ever asked me that question. <laughs> and I didn't know. I honestly, and so I thought about it. And then I told Sori, I said, you know what? I don't know what the word, award is going to be, but Jesus said it was going to be an award, right? Yeah. And, and, and God is great. Isn't that right? Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and I put in a Allah Akbar. <laughs> well, a great God would surely know how to give a great reward, right? And so he said, yeah. And then he got all excited. He told me about his evil, malicious plan. <laughs> he didn't think it was evil at the time. But he told me about his enemy. He told me about the sick relative. And then he begged me to give them a ride. And he insisted that we pray for them right then and there underneath the tree. <laughs> and we did. Now, most of us have a hard time being good to our enemies, don't we? <laughs> Why is it so hard for most of us and so easy and even delightful for Sonny? Well, I thought about that and I realized it's be I think it's because of this. When we are thinking about our enemy, we're still thinking about all the bad things they did to us. That's where our mind is. And it seems really hard to do anything good for them. But Sonny was so... Captured. He was so taken by the thought of the reward that Jesus promised that he wasn't thinking about the bad things at all. He was thinking about the reward. He was thinking about being a child of the Most High. And so he immediately wanted to do that. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And that is how the malice-laden heart of Sori Konate <laughs> began to be transformed into a loving heart by Christ. What do you think of that?
But simply reading Jesus' teaching to people is not enough. It is a necessary component of making disciples, but it must accompany the discipline of a mentor or a coach. Here's why. Um, sometimes people respond the way Saudi did, and they'll obey Jesus right away. Sometimes that happens. But for most of us, it'll take some practice. We're not used to thinking like Jesus, and, and you forget. And so having a mentor or a coach that is actually that deliberately intends to watch your life closely and my life. Having someone like that to, to speak into our life and correct us is really helpful for most of us. So it's not a matter of just teaching content. We can teach the content of what Jesus told us in about three hours probably. But training Training to, to, to have the habits of thinking the way Jesus thinks, well, that's something else. And that takes something like a mentor or a coach. It takes practice. It's all about the Great Commission. Pastor Sean will be, uh, in the future, in the near future, be preaching on Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, the Great Commission making disciples, and I'm going to give you a paraphrase of what that is right here. Jesus is king of the cosmos. Wow, I should have said that louder. Jesus is king of the cosmos. <laughs> and he told us to make apprentices that practice his lifestyle. He even told us how to go about it. Firstly, we go wherever we must to interact socially with people from every ethnic group in the world. Secondly, we initiate them into the character of God the Father and into the character of his son, King Jesus, and in to that holy character residing invisibly but manifestly among the community of practitioners. Thirdly, we teach them to put into practice everything Jesus told us to be and to do. So you see how, especially that end, you see how it's not just a matter of teaching with a whiteboard here? <laughs> it's a matter of coaching, training, uh, developing new habits of thought. Um, the mentor has permission from the apprentice to know what is really going on in his or her life. Too often, we don't really want to have that kind of relationship. <laughs> well, it's, what, it's the kind of relationship that King Jesus had in mind when he said to make disciples. 
King Jesus provided us with uh, infallible curriculum. Now, when I say curriculum, I have to give uh, uh, kudos to a man named Dallas Willard who wrote a book uh, called uh, The Divine Conspiracy. And in that book, he gave me the idea, or he just gave me a hint when he used the word curriculum, and I realized that Jesus has specific things that he wants us to learn and, and develop into a habit in our life. And there's, there's actually a specific number of them. And we can know when we have that or not. And so I realized when I'm making disciples, when I'm helping someone else, I should probably make a list. So I have this, this list, a, apprentice progress list. And on this side, I just have one example here. On this side, I have all of the teachings of Jesus, say in the Gospel of Luke. I can add Matthew and add Mark now and, and add John. But I have all the things that Jesus told us to be and to do listed right here. I have a little verse reference. And I also have just a phrase that kind of uh, lets me know really quickly what it's about to remind me. Uh, this says, do not condemn. So that kind of reminds me what, what that particular teaching is about. And then I watch Sodi's life. And even though he, he did, so remember the story I told you about the, his malice with that, with that other person? Later on, as I'm discipling Sodi, uh, another situation came up. There's a man named Non-King that came to Sodi's house and he wanted to borrow some cows. And Sodi told him that his cows weren't trained. <laughs> they weren't trained, and so he, he can't really loan them to anyone. Sorry. And so then Nanking left. Well, I knew that was a lie. <laughs> because I was with Sodi, working in his field, and his cows are doing just fine. <laughs> And so after Nankin left, I asked Sodi, I said, I said, Sodi, what, why did you lie to that guy? And he said, Usman, that's my name. He said, Usman, you don't know Nankin. He is a cow thief. <laughs> he's done it before, he'll do it again. And he's lazy. And then he said a whole bunch of other things that I'm not going to talk about. About non-king. He, he was very judgmental and, and he condemned non-king. But you see how Sodi forgot about uh, Jesus' teaching about his en enemy later on? And so I noticed that. And so I said, ah, that's probably, I believe everything you're saying about non-king, but Jesus taught us to, to give to those who want to borrow. And, and, he, and he taught us to not judge. He said, you know, not to condemn. And if we don't condemn, we won't be condemned. And so I, I reminded Sodi of what Jesus said. And then you know what Sodi said? He said, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then we further had a uh, conversation, and, and we, we remembered some other of Jesus' teaching. We remembered that Sodi's cows aren't even really his cows. They belong to the kingdom. Oh, cultural uh, update. Sodi's cows are to him the way your vehicle is to you. So you need your car. Sodi needs his cows. 
and now he's going to loan him to a known cow thief? It, it seems like a risk. But Sodi and I, as we were talking, we decided uh, that we were going to risk God's cows because it's what, it's what his Lord wants him to do. And so together, he and I decided that we would go to Nan King's house and explain to him what Jesus is like, what God is like, he doesn't condemn. Sodi's going to apologize to him for condemning him and for his bad attitude. And then Sodi is going to loan his cows. But we're, we were not stupid. We're going to send Sodi's kids along with the cows <laughs> to mitigate some of the risk. But you see what we did. We, we figured out a, some training. And I was there to help him remember what Jesus said, even though he kind of knew. I wrote that down in my little journal. Page eight, lone cows to non-king. Well, later on, later on, other things have happened, some other events, because that's how, that's how the Spirit of God teaches us. We have events, trials, and then we have what Jesus says. They all come together so that there is custom-made instruction for life. And so later on, there is a guy, it's a relative of Sodi's, his name is Kaba. And Kaba's been unkind, I won't tell you the story. And Sodi reacted, because he remembered what it was like to go to Nanking. <laughs> and then Sodi wanted not to be condemned by God, and so he wasn't going to condemn Kaba. And he was kind to a man, a relative that wasn't even kind to him. When I saw that, I marked it into the column that says habitual obedience. Well, this went on until today, Sori Konate habitually obeys everything that Jesus taught us to be and to do. Every once in a while, he forgets, but that's not his go-to. That's not his norm. That's not his habit he habitually obeys everything that Jesus taught. Sodi is now a mature believer in Christ. His life is transformed. And that's the way it happened, kind of the way Jesus said. Now here's what we do at the end. Uh, um, we celebrate that. We celebrate that. Here's the conclusion. If you heard something in this message that made you worship the Lord, would you just raise your hand and indicate that? Okay. That's cool. Now, here's another question. If you learned something in this message that made you consider adjusting how you follow Jesus or how you make disciples, how you teach another person to follow Jesus, would you please raise your hand to indicate that? Here is my final question. You don't need to raise your hand. 
I want to ask you then to share what made you worship God. You know, what, what, what thought was that? What teaching was that? Or what made you begin to rethink how you follow Jesus or teach him? I want you to share that with someone else in our spiritual family. Okay? It doesn't have to be today, but today can be a start. But sometime before next week, share that with someone else in our spiritual family. I am very pleased to be in this spiritual family. Uh, I de- I've, I've declared this before, and I will declare it again because it's still true. We probably have the best men's room in the entire county. <laughs> And the reason why, I don't know about the women's room, so I, I don't know, but the men's room is marvelous. And here's, here's why. It not only looks good, but we have this kind of, kind of writing in the men's room. And what it, what, it, what it says here is, we exist to make disciples of Christ by connecting men and women to God and his church calling them to maturity in Christ. Isn't that what we were just talking about? And commissioning them for the mission of God. That's not on every men's room wall, I promise you. But this is the way the community of the Holy Ones rolls. And uh, I want to encourage you to that end.